0: Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast recorded live on Thursday, January 24th, 2019, is a distinguished Lehrman Fellow at NYHS Lecture. In this talk, historian Andrew Roberts discusses Winston Churchill's unique sense of humor and how his jokes served as powerful weapons in his political armory.
1: If Winston Churchill had not been a politician, I believe he could have made a good living as a stand-up comedian. As early as 1947, before he'd even become Prime Minister for the second time, Wit and wisdom books of his best jokes and quips were already being published. He had become one of those lucky few to whom witticisms are attributed whether they ever actually said them or not. (laughs) A good deal of research has gone into finding out which witticisms Churchill did say and did not say, principally by my friend Richard Langworth. And the result is that we now know that he has a body of well-attributed remarks that easily puts him on a par with his contemporary wits, Oscar Wilde, Hilaire Belloc, A.P. Herbert, Dorothy Parker, and Noel Coward, added to which he had the comic timing of Groucho Marx. (laughs) (laughs) Wit mattered highly to Churchill, and he turned it into a very effective weapon in his political armory, to charm audiences, of course, but also to deflect criticism, ridicule opponents, and sometimes to calm situations that were getting too fraught. He well understood that he needed to entertain his audiences if he was also to instruct, persuade, and, especially in wartime, to inspire. His use of wit started early. When Mr Mayo, his Harrow school teacher, said to Churchill's class, I don't know what to do with you boys, Churchill called out, teach us, sir? <laughs> Asked in an interview in 1902 about the qualities desirable in a politician, Churchill said, The ability to foretell what is going to happen tomorrow, next week, next month, and next year, and then to explain why it didn't happen. (laughs) He also could uh, quip of the job of an MP. He's asked to stand, he wants to sit, and he's expected to lie. (laughs) Many politicians of his time, indeed of our time too, would ponderously start their speeches with a set-piece joke to try and establish themselves as normal human beings before getting down to the serious political part of their addresses. By total contrast, Churchill would often pepper his serious remarks with wittier sides throughout his speeches, forcing his audiences to concentrate all the harder as he lightened and darkened the tone at will. A.P. Herbert, another great parliamentary wit of the day, pointed out that words on the printed page would not wholly do Churchill's humour justice, quote, without some knowledge of the scene, the circumstances, the unique and vibrant voice, the pause, the chuckle, the mischievous and boyish twinkle on the face. Even in the darkest days of World War II, Churchill managed to inject humour into his speeches... Indeed, as I will argue tonight, he did it especially during the darkest days of World War II, knowing how good it was for the British people to know that their leader was not demoralised, but indeed capable of making jokes, however dire the situation seemed. Indeed, I believe that the darker the situation got, the funnier his jokes became. This would have been impossible, of course, for anyone who didn't believe that he was walking with destiny. Churchill's immediate predecessors as Prime Minister... Andrew Bonalore, Stanley Baldwin, Ramsay MacDonald and Neville Chamberlain, rarely brought with witty repartee into the chamber of the House of Commons. Some because they were simply incapable of it, others because they thought it unbecoming. With Churchill, the expectation of a quotable witticism would fill up the chamber as he rose to speak. He used his wit to encourage higher tendencies, both for his Commons orations and for his public speeches around the country. When he started out on his political career in the days before radio, people who came to his speeches would know that they would be the first in the pub or back at home to repeat the jokes he'd made. Churchill honed his wit when he stood for Parliament seven times in the 11 years between 1899 and 1910, often by replying to hecklers on the election stump. Standing as a liberal in his Uh, 1908 by-election, Churchill asked, what would be the consequence if this seat were lost to liberalism? Now, it's always a risk um, to ask a rhetorical question uh, to a lively audience, because during the pause that must follow the question for the portent of it to sink in, someone might shout out something funny that undermines it. Sure enough, on this occasion, when Churchill asked what would be the consequence if this seat were lost to liberalism, a heckler shouted out, beer, beer. Um, because the Tories were always promising to cut the price of ale. That might be the cause, Churchill immediately replied. I'm talking about the consequence. (laughs) Later on, another heckler um, yelled rot at one of his points. When my friend in the gallery says rot, Churchill retorted, "Um, he is no doubt expressing very fully what he has in his mind. (laughs) Such sallies were part of what people had come along for. And the word laughter appeared more than 40 times in the Times newspaper's report of that meeting. I can assure you that the word laughter hardly ever appeared in the reports of speeches by Andrew Bonalore or Neville Chamberlain, uh, let alone 40 times. The Times is speechless, Churchill also joked during that by-election, and takes three columns to express its speechlessness. (laughs) Of the Liberal Party's support for Irish Home Rule, he added... And thousands of people who never under any circumstances voted liberal before are saying that under no circumstances will they ever vote liberal again. (laughs) The art of the riposte was central to Churchill's fame as a public speaker. And it meant that few really wanted to take him on. He was once called a dirty dog by the Labour MP, Sir William Paling, And he retorted... May I remind the Honourable Member what dogs, dirty or otherwise, do to palings? <laughs> he enjoyed playing with the names of people, saying of an MP called Bossum that he was neither the one thing nor the other. I'm going to explain that um, uh, to you, um, but you do need to keep up, ladies and gentlemen. Um, <clears throat> uh, and as this is a family audience, I'll explain it to anybody afterwards. Um, When told that General Plasteros, uh, which was pronounced Plaster-arse, had become Prime Minister of Greece, Churchill asked, but does he have feet of clay? (laughs) (laughs) The jokes were not always directed against people. Um, When a photographer who was taking the photographs for Churchill's 75th birthday said, I hope, sir, that I will shoot your picture on your 100th birthday, Churchill replied, I don't see why not, young man. You look reasonably fit and healthy. (laughs) Overall, however, um, his jokes were directed, of course, against political opponents, uh, which must also go some way to explain why he was so unpopular in the House of Commons in the wilderness years. He spoke without a note, he said, of a Labour MP in 1930, and almost without a point. (laughs) When a Tory MP left the Conservatives to stand as a Liberal, he described it as the only instance of a rat swimming toward a sinking ship. (laughs) Of the aristocratic Tory MP, George Wyndham, he said, I like the martial and commanding air with which the right honourable gentleman treats facts. He stands no nonsense from them. What forcibly struck me again and again while researching and writing my biography of Churchill was how he constantly made jokes throughout the worst crises in modern British history. In 1940, when the Nazis were threatening to invade my country, there was no moment so bad that he couldn't lighten the mood and improve the morale of everyone around him uh, through the targeted deployment of his sense of humour. When he was at number 10, there was always laughter in the corridors recalled his private secretary, Jock Colville, of 1940, even in the darkest and most difficult times. Just after the Dunkirk evacuation, for example, when the head of the Royal Navy, Admiral Sir Dudley Pound, brought Churchill the long, long list of all the ships sunk and damaged in that uh, hugely expensive operation. Churchill told him, ''As far as I can see, we only have the Victoria and Albert left.'' The Victorian Albert, ladies and gentlemen, was the royal yacht. <laughs> After the fall of Belgium, Holland, and Luxembourg, when his private secretary, Jock Colville, took him a telegram while he was dressing for dinner, Churchill said, another bloody country gone west, I'll bet. Three days before Paris fell, when the crisis meeting at Briere, uh, at that meeting with uh, the French Prime Minister, Paul Renault, uh, he was asked by Renault what his defence plans were for the expected German invasion of Britain. And Churchill replied, I haven't thought that out very carefully, but broadly speaking, I should propose to drown as many as possible of them on the way over and then knock on the head anyone who managed to crawl ashore. Um, He said this, of course, in his execrable French, uh, frappé sur la tête was the way he put it. Um, and sadly, history doesn't relate how the, uh, what the, the French reaction was to such levity uh, at a time so um, calamitous to them. But to maintain a sense of humour at such a desperate moment showed how effortlessly Churchill could lighten tension when needed. Fortunately, he had left the conference before Végon, uh, General Vagon predicted to Reno that within a month, Britain would have her neck wrung like a chicken. In the same speech in June 1940, in which he said that in a thousand years, men would still say this was their finest hour. Churchill made a joke about the Italian Navy, which had performed badly during uh, World War One. There is a general curiosity in the British fleet to find out whether the Italians are up to the level they were in the last war, he said, or whether they have fallen off at all. (laughs) it was extraordinary that he made jokes even in so important a speech about so serious a subject but it was something that he had always done the writer peter fleming analyzed why that particular joke went down so well in parliament and the public writing if he had ended or whether they were even worse he would have scored a hit by employing a subtler twist of denigration, he gave to the passage that characteristic lilt of gaiety and evoked in his hearers the agreeable sensation of having been made privy to a personal code of humour. This personal code of humour, of course, had a side that some decried as heartless. On the 7th of August 1942, General um, Lieutenant General William Gott had been shot down and killed in a plane in the Western Desert. That evening, when Field Marshal Jan Smuts, the Prime Minister of South Africa, accused Churchill of not appealing enough to religious motives in politics, Churchill replied with mock indignation, I've made more bishops than anyone since St. Augustine. It might have seemed insensitive to joke on such a sad day, but as he wrote later, who in war will not have his laugh amid the skulls? If humour had been considered unacceptable whenever there had been a tragic death in that war, Churchill would have made no jokes at all. And as one who had served in the trenches of the Great War, and on four campaigns prior to that, he knew that humour, even in the worst times, has always been an invaluable part of soldiers' psychological armoury. Yet many of Churchill's jokes were self-deprecating, as when, at another dangerous time for him during a no-confidence motion in July 1942, he was attacked over the serious shortcomings of the A-22 tank. As might be expected, he said, it had many defects and teething troubles. And when these became apparent, the tank was appropriately rechristened the Churchill. (laughs) Here, the key word that makes that joke work is the self-deprecating appropriately. He knew and admitted that he had his own defects and teething troubles. And as a result, he won the sympathy and support of the house, which a less credible defense of the tank in question would not have brought him. Churchill's capacity for using humour to deflect criticism or change the subject was to serve him well in the war years and beyond. The flight of Rudolf Hess to Scotland in May 1941 gave Churchill some opportunities for joking, even though it was a very serious moment in the war. Hess landed on the same night that the Chamber of the House of Commons had been destroyed in an air raid. He was amused, um, uh, Churchill this is, was amused when the Duke of Hamilton told him that the deputy Führer had chosen to fly to his, Hamilton's, escape, estate in Scotland because Hamilton was Lord Steward of His Majesty's household. Uh, Hess had taken it to be a real rather than entirely honorific uh, title and therefore he thought he'd be able to urge his peace message upon the king, um, which Hess had, wrongly thought, uh, sorry, Hess had wrongly thought the king might be in favour of peace. I suppose he thinks that the Duke carves the chicken, Churchill um, joked to his entourage about this post, the Lord Steward of the Household, and consults the king as to whether he likes breast or leg. (laughs) The consequences were not so humorous, of course. Churchill did not want anyone in Britain, America or Russia suspecting that he or his government was interested in peace negotiations. At lunch, explaining the whole bizarre story to the king, Churchill joked that he would be very angry if Beaverbrook or Anthony Eden suddenly left here and flew off to Germany without warning. He told the public, therefore, the truth, that it had been a deranged act of a man close to a mental breakdown, and indeed Hess attempted to commit suicide the following month. After extensive debriefing in the Tower of London, Hess spent much of the rest of the war at a camp near Abergavenny in Wales. On all sides, one hears increasing criticism of Churchill, noted the... Tory MP, Henry Channon, on the 6th of June, 1941. He is undergoing a noticeable slump in popularity, and many of his enemies, long silenced by his personal popularity, are once more vocal. Churchill was nevertheless able to make light of this in his next cabinet meeting. People criticise this government, he said, but its great strength, and I dare say, in this, uh, dare say it in this company, is that there's no alternative. I don't, I, he said, I don't think it's a bad government, Come think of it, it's a very good one. I have complete confidence in it. In fact, there's never been a government to which I have felt such sincere and wholehearted loyalty. (laughs) Coming from someone who had been noticeably disloyal to a succession of governments, this declaration of loyalty to his own one uh, amused his fellow cabinet ministers. For years, he'd been joking at uh, criticism uh, and how much criticism he got. In November 1914, he told the House of Commons, criticism is always advantageous, I have derived uh, continual benefit from criticisms at all periods of my life, and I do not remember any time when I was ever short of it. (laughs) Churchill would not mind waiting for the perfect opportunity for a riposte. After one of his budget debates, Lord Monsal congratulated Churchill on a crushing retort he'd made and asked him how he did it. Bobby, it's patience, Churchill explained. I've waited two years to get that one off. (laughs) His mastery of what one could get away with saying in the chamber and his sense of comic timing, are evident when he told the Labour Party, who were barracking him, of course it's perfectly possible for honourable members to prevent my speaking, and of course I don't want to cast my pearls before those who do not want them. (laughs) (laughs) Um, the word swine to um, describe one's political opponents was, of course, entirely banned under Erskine May, the parliamentary rule book. On that occasion, Labour members laughed for such a long time after that joke that when the debate resumed, they had actually forgotten why they were barracking him in the first place. <laughs> in another ill-tempered debate, this time about the general strike, Churchill again deflected criticism, as so often in his career, with a well-timed joke, telling the Labour benches, make your minds perfectly clear that if ever you let loose upon us uh, again a general strike, we will loose upon you a British Gazette. The British Gazette had been an anti-socialist newspaper that he'd edited during the general strike. The impact of Churchill's jokes lay in his superb sense of comic timing, delivering the punchline, which was an essential feature of his wit. Budget debates were, and indeed are, typically very boring in British politics, being all about finance. But in a typically Churchillian way, he turned them into spectacles, so much so that the galleries were packed during his budgets, and even the Prince of Wales came to one, making them into a fashionable occasion in society. In the budget debate in April 1931... Um, when some on the other side of the House, some MPs on the other side of the House, complimented him on his chancellorship. Churchill replied, I suppose a favourable verdict is always to be valued, even if it comes from an unjust judge or a nobbled umpire. When he said in another debate, we have all heard how Dr Guillotine was executed by the instrument that he invented, and Sir Herbert Samuel shouted, he was not, Churchill replied, well, he ought to have been. (laughs) There were certain topics during World War II on which he taught his listeners to expect jokes, which included his own loquacity, his own execrable French, and any mention of Benito Mussolini. He also once said of Charles de Gaulle, another great, um, a great uh, usually in private, of course, um, a great butt of his wit. He said of uh, Charles de Gaulle that, now that the general speaks English so well, he understands my French perfectly. <laughs> His description of General de Gaulle as being like a llama surprised in her bath um, is principally funny, I think, because he's made the llama female. Um, I am, of course, exceedingly pro-French, he once told his entourage. Unfortunately, the French are exceedingly pro <laughs> uh, When... On another occasion, his friend Brendan Bracken said that de Gaulle regarded himself as a reincarnation of St. Joan, J- Joan of Arc. Um, Churchill growled, yes, but my bishops won't burn him. <laughs> sadly, yeah, sadly, very sadly, he did not say the heaviest cross I have to bear is the cross of Lorraine, uh, which was actually said by General Louis Spears, the British representative to the Free French. From Wildean quips to English high irony to ruthless ridicule, Churchill's capacity to joke was a powerful weapon that he deployed regularly. He very rarely resorted to set-piece gags, and much preferring to riff off any situation he found himself in. But an exception came during a period of heavy criticism after defeats in the Western Desert in late 1941, when he joked how there was a custom in imperial China... That anyone who wished to criticise the government had the right to, and, provided he followed that up by committing suicide, very great respect was paid to his words, and and, and no ulterior motive was assigned. Um, That seems to me to have been, from many points of view, a wise custom. But I would certainly be the last to suggest that it should be made retrospective. This was also the period, of course, when he made this great statement on opinion polls. He said, nothing is more dangerous in wartime than to live in the temperamental atmosphere of a Gallup pole, always feeling one's pulse and taking one's temperature. I see it, I see, um, sorry, I've seen it said that leaders should keep their ears to the ground. All I can say is that the British nation will find it very hard to look up to the leaders who are detected in that somewhat ungainly posture. (laughs) If you you want uh, the concept of leadership summed up in three sentences you could do worse than that. Churchill deployed understatement to excellent effect, especially if his listeners were expecting something portentous. In February 1943, he read out General Harold uh, Harold Alexander's splendid message that, his majesty's enemies, together with their impedimenta, have been completely eliminated from Egypt, Cyrenaica, Libya, and Tripolitania. I now await your further instructions. Churchill then added to the House of Commons, well, obviously we shall have to think of something else. (laughs) When Churchill's valet, uh, Frank Sawyers, accompanied him on a flight from Algiers to England in February 1943 and said to the Prime Minister, you're sitting on your hot water bottle. That isn't a good idea. Idea, replied the Prime Minister. It isn't an idea. It's a coincidence. Later that year, on the way to Roosevelt's um, residence at, uh, President Roosevelt's residence at Hyde Park, Churchill and his daughter Mary visited the Niagara Falls, which he'd last seen in 1900. Do they look the same? asked a not-particularly-bright journalist. Whereupon Churchill replied, Well, the principle seems the same. The water, sti- <laughs> Sorry. The water still keeps falling over. <laughs> Of course, Churchill's detractors um, and opponents tried to use his sense of humour to imply that he was not a serious politician. Many of the letters and uh, diary entries that echo Neville Chamberlain's uh, uh, remark, um, uh, there was obviously a political uh, price to pay in having a sense of humour. Neville Chamberlain wrote to Lord Halifax in, um, in 1926 about Churchill... His speeches are extraordinarily brilliant, and men flock in to hear him as they would to a first-class entertainment at the theatre. The best show in London, they say, and there is the weak point. So far as I can judge, they think of it as a show, and they're not prepared at present to trust his character and still less his judgment. Personally, I can't help liking and admiring him more the more I see of him, but it is always accompanied by a diminution of my intellectual respect for him. Someone that funny, Chamberlain seems to be saying, cannot also be intellectually first-rate. On um, on D-Day, over 160,000 men landed in Normandy in 24 hours, parachuted from planes and landing on the five invasion beaches, codenade uh, Omaha and Utah sword, Golden Juno. Although there were over 8,000 casualties that day, of whom around 3,000 were killed, and um, This was on the lower end of the spectrum of what had been feared. Yet, yeah, but for, for all these grim thoughts, Churchill never lost his sense of humour during that period. When an MP asked him on June the 8th, D plus 2, to promise the House that he would ensure that the same mistakes were not made after victory in World War II that had been made after the victory in World War I, the Prime Minister replied, that is most fully in our minds, I am sure that the mistakes of that time will not be repeated. We shall probably make another set of mistakes. (laughs) On the afternoon of the 1st of May, 1945, the day after Hitler's death, the Commons Chamber was full of MPs uh, expecting the announcement of victory in Europe. I have no special statement to make about the war position uh, in Europe, Churchill said, except that it is definitely more satisfactory than it was this time five years ago. As well as understatement... English high irony and dry, and dry ultra-dry uh, wit was another favourite genre of Churchillian humour. On the 20th of July, 1944, a small group of German generals tried to kill Hitler in his East Prussian headquarters, the Wolfschanze. Um, for this joke to work, it helps to know that Hitler's paternal grandmother had been Maria, Maria Schickelgruber and Hitler's father, Alois, Had that name until he legally changed it to Hitler. When Herr Hitler escaped his uh, bomb on the 20th of July, Churchill described uh, Churchill joked to the Commons in September, he described his survival as providential. I think that from a purely military point of view, we can all agree with him, for certainly it would be the most unfortunate if the Allies were to be deprived in the closing phases of this struggle, of that form of warlike genius by which Corporal Schickelgruber has has so notably contributed to our victory. On the 2nd of August uh, of Corporal Hitler, he joked, even military idiots find it difficult not to see some faults in some of his actions. Altogether, I think it much better to let officers rise up in the proper way. The next month asked to give the House a categorical denunciation of the Prime Minister of the collaborationist Vichy regime, Pierre Laval, Churchill joked, I'm afraid I've rather exhausted the possibilities of the English language. As well as Britain's enemies, Churchill also ridiculed his own um, political opponents relentlessly. A favourite butt was Anarin Bevin, uh, the Labour MP for Ebervale, who kept demanding Churchill's resignation during the war, and after it said that Tories were lower than vermin. On the issue of Britain recognising Red China diplomatically in July 1952, Churchill said, if you recognise anyone, it doesn't necessarily mean that you like him. We all, for instance, recognise the Right Honourable Gentleman, the member for Ebervale. <laughs> <laughs> Churchill was particularly good at puncturing the pomposity of oleaginous MPs. When, during Prime Minister's questions, one Tory MP suggested that the House should toast death to all dictators and long life to all liberators, among whom the Prime Minister is the first, Churchill phlegmatically replied, it's very early in the morning. (laughs) When a famously long-winded MP called for a national day of prayer um, for the uh, war and asked, will the Prime Minister assure the House that... While we have quite properly attended to the physical needs of defense and of our other problems, we should not forget those spiritual resources which have inspired this country in the past and without which the noblest civilization would decay, Churchill replied, I hardly think that's my exclusive responsibility. <laughs> when he used the uh, Latin expression primus inter pares, um, meaning first in, among equals, and Labour MPs shouted out, uh, translate, Churchill said, certainly I shall translate. ...for the benefit of any Elder Etonian's presence. <laughs> um, also, when situations got too fraught, um, he managed to use his humour to calm, uh, calm situations. There's a marvellous example of this in one of the cabinet meetings in, um, in 1943... ...when they were trying to get Turkey into the war. And this was something that uh, continued all the way through... ...trying to, uh, to encourage the Turks to, uh, to join the Allies... Not a very successful um, uh, policy in that they, Turkey finally declared war in, uh, on Nazi Germany in March 1945. <laughs> um, but, uh, but back in 1943, they were trying to, to do this. And the cabinet was split about whether or not you should use the carrot and try to draw the Turks in by offering them things, or the stick um, and try to, to force the Turks to, uh, to declare war by threatening them. And um, Churchill was um, was very much on the on the latter side. He wanted to do the threatening. And Anthony Eden, uh, who was about to go off to uh, Ankara to negotiate with the Turks, wanted to um, uh, wanted to offer them uh, um, offer them things to to join. And uh, and the situation got harder and harder and tougher and tougher. And all the people, the diaries of the people who were at that meeting. Were uh, said that um, the, the whole unity of the cabinet was on the verge of breaking down. Um, so ill-tempered was it. And this was in November nineteen forty-three, and uh, Churchill um, uh, uh, Churchill made a joke that uh, that completely uh, dissolved the cabinet into laughter when he when he told Anthony Eden, um, "Tell Turkey that Christmas is coming." (Laughter) <laughs> <laughs> In his first speech after losing the 1945 general election, Churchill choked how a friend of mine, an officer, was in Zagreb when the results of the late general election came in. An old lady said to him, poor Mr Churchill, I suppose he will now be shot. Uh, My friend was able to reassure her. He said that the sentence might be mitigated to one of the various forms of hard labour which were always open to his majesty's subjects. Returning to the opposition benches in 1945 for the first time in 14 years gave Churchill endless opportunities to use humour to criticise the government, which he used unsparingly. On occasion, though, he came to his opponent Clement Attlee's defence, as when Stalin accused Attlee of being a warmonger over the Korean War and rearmament. Churchill retorted that, as Labour was intending to call him, Churchill, a warmonger in the next election, so, quote, Stalin has therefore been guilty not only of an untruth, but also of infringement of copyright. (laughs) The timing of this speech um, had come when, with, uh, sorry, the time of this speech, the speech I'm giving you now, has come when, with a very heavy heart, I must disappoint a large number of you in this audience by telling you some of the very large number of very good and funny jokes that Churchill did not say. Richard Langworth has trawled all the sources long and hard, and in a chapter entitled Red Herrings, in his excellent book, Churchill in His Own Words, he lays out ten pages full of false attributions. Um, Richard and all other Churchill scholars have not been able to find the moment when uh, Churchill told Lady Astor, or indeed anybody else, that if he were married to her and she poisoned his coffee, then he would drink it. I, um, <laughs> I'm I'm sorry about that. Neither uh, did he say that if you're going through hell, keep going. Uh, He never called Clement Attlee a sheep in sheep's clothing. Uh, Nor did he say an empty car drew up and Clement Attlee got out. Um, he He never said that Britain and America are two nations divided by a common language. Or, people sleep peacefully in their beds at night because rough men stand ready to do violence on their behalf. A wonderful quotation, not a joke, obviously, a quotation, but unfortunately, uh, it's attributed to him and he didn't say it. Um, He he also didn't say, I know of no case where a man added to his dignity by standing on it. Um, Or, a fanatic is someone who won't change his mind and won't change the subject. It's a great shame that among the red herrings is Churchill's supposed reply to the threat from um, Joachim von Ribbentrop at a meeting in 1936 when Ribbentrop was ambassador to London. And um, and Ribbentrop threatened uh, uh, Churchill by saying that uh, if there are a future war, um, then uh, Germany would have the Italians on their side. My dear ambassador, Churchill's supposed to have said, it's only fair we had them last time. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yet for all of this there are several hundred equally funny uh, several hundred equally funny remarks that he did make churchill's intelligence and speed of response and perhaps all, also his great memory for repartee from old musical uh, um, musical turns that he'd watched as a young man um, stood him in excellent stead as in this story He enjoyed inviting visitors, even comparative strangers, to his house, Chartwell, in uh, Kent. On one occasion, he offered a Mormon uh, visitor a whiskey and soda, who replied, May I have water, Sir Winston? Lions drink it. Asses drink it too, uh, came the (laughs) remark. Another Mormon present said, Strong drink rageth and stingeth like a serpent. Churchill replied, I've long been looking for a drink like that. (laughs) when his private secretary Anthony Montague Brown once the Mormons had left congratulated him on the repasts, he grinned and said none of it was original they just fed me the musical chance as a drinker, smoker and carnivore outliving teetotalers and vegetarians never failed to give Churchill huge satisfaction <laughs> I uh, get my exercise as a pallbearer to my many friends who exercised all their lives uh, <laughs> he- he once said. Um, he, <laughs> he also took great satisfaction from owning his 37 racehorses. And By the time of his death, of course today is the anniversary of, um, of Winston Churchill's death in 1965. Um, a few years, uh, uh, by the time of his death, he had won 70 races. A few years after a victory at Hearst Park in the 1950s, when it was suggested to him that his best racehorse, Colonist Two, be put out to stud, he replied, And have it said that the Prime Minister of Great Britain is living off the immoral earnings of a horse? <laughs> Some decried Churchill's use of humour as flippant, others as a cynical weapon to win popularity and to deflect legitimate criticism. But it also reflected his extraordinary coolness under pressure, as well as his refusal to be cast down and his belief in the necessity of maintaining morale. He was an epigrammatist to rival Samuel Johnson and Sydney Smith. But unlike them, he was witty whilst also saving his country during a world war. Clement Attlee recalled of uh, Churchill's, uh, the time of Churchill's death in January 1945, um, I recall the long days through the war, the long days and long nights, in which his spirit never failed, and how often he lightened our labours by that vivid humour, those wonderful remarks he would make, which absolutely dissolved us all in laughter, however tired we were. In May 1940, Winston Churchill might have offered his country nothing but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. But they weren't all tears of pain and loss. Sometimes, when they were least expected but most often needed, they were tears of laughter, too. Thank you very much indeed. Um, uh, These are the questions that I've been sent by you. Thank you very much for them. There are quite a few of them, and I expect there might be more. Um, Did Churchill ever joke about King George? Actually, no, he didn't. There were certain things that he uh, considered um, uh, beyond um, joking, and uh, and the King Emperor was one of them, um, not least because he wouldn't have wanted that to have got back to him, but also because he had what Clementine, his wife, said was a... um, uh, an attitude towards the monarchy that um, verged on the divine right of kings. Um, how did Churchill's family influence his sense of humour? Many of his best jokes were made around the dining table at, uh, at Chartwell. He had this big round dining table made where he could fit 14 people and, um, and he would start on monologues that uh, occasionally with, with all the jokes interspersed and he would test out his jokes on his family very often before he, um, he then used them in the House of Commons. Um, so, um, and, and they all, they all um, had a good sense of humour. Um, did Churchill ever make jokes about Roosevelt? Uh, yeah, there are two. Um, there are two very good ones. I'm going to try and remember the, um, the exact wording of them. The, um, the first was when, um, after Pearl Harbor, when the a general came to him and said, uh, said, well, we have to be very careful about saying this uh, about the Americans. And Churchill said, um, said oh, no. He said, uh, um, uh, that was before, uh, before the Americans were in the war. Um, in, earlier, I had to, uh, to treat President Roosevelt with um, the, uh, the respect um, that he deserved. But now that he's in the harem, I don't have to. <laughs> You've written extensively on Churchill's relationship with Franklin Roosevelt. Like Churchill, did FDR have a known sense of humour? Yes, FDR, FDR, absolutely. They had a charming sense of humour. They got on. They 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 got on completely naturally. Um, Churchill couldn't stand. Um, the, he absolutely hated the uh, cocktails that FDR mixed for him. Um, and, um, and, and that was one bone of contention. But other than that, um, they got on like a house on fire until about uh, the fall of 1944. And that was solely because of, uh, of politics. That was because the interests of the American Republic were diverging from the interests of the British Empire. And so as a result, you see from that period um, the uh, divergence, but but not uh, a weakening in the in the personal affection and regard that they had for one another. Um, did Churchill listen to any radio programs featuring comedians? Um, who was he most fond of in terms of comedians? He uh, listened to Tommy Trinder. He listened to something called um, uh, the Navy Lark. Um, he, had, he had a series of comedians who he loved from the old days of the musical, the Edwardian musical, um, and he, uh, he did enjoy listening to radio shows and, uh, and, uh, and laughing. He also, of course, watched a movie pretty much every night. Uh, that he was staying at uh, at um, Checkers during the Second World War, and he had a, um, a movie theater set up there, and he would watch comedy films. He enjoyed Laurel and Hardy, um, and he would uh, so, so very often. They would have one comedy, and then after that, a serious uh, a serious movie. He was a huge movie buff, and um, and he enjoyed the comedy ones. He enjoyed the Marx Brothers uh, as well. In fact, he was watching a Marx Brothers movie. Um, on the day that he heard about Rudolf Hess flying in. And, um, and his private secretary um, found it difficult to get the prime minister to take it seriously that, uh, <laughs> that, 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 that this, had, uh, this had happened. Um, how disappointed or angry was Churchill that his party lost the election after World War II? He was very disappointed at the time. Um, famously, of course, his wife Clementine said... Um, said that it was probably um, uh, a blessing in disguise. And uh, Churchill replied, from where I'm sitting, it seems quite effectively disguised. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but um, but he, he did not allow himself to become angry about it uh, at all. In fact, the king's private secretary was surprised, Sir Alan Lassons was surprised by how um, calm he was. And, um, and when he asked exactly the same question as this questioner, um, uh, Churchill said, "No, I understand they've been through a lot." Um, so he did. Uh, he appreciated that um, uh, he he always, because of his love of democracy and his belief in what he called uh, one uh, a small man with a small pencil and a small putting a small cross in a small box, um, which for him summed up the concept of uh, of democracy. He um, he wasn't. He didn't take uh, he didn't take umbrage against the uh, decision of the. Of the British people. In fact, a couple of months before it even happened, he pointed out how often in British history the British people had turned against their saviors uh, as soon as they had um, got through the uh, through the rapids and into the um, calm water. Theodore Roosevelt died in January nineteen nineteen. Did he and Churchill ever meet? What did they think of each other? Uh, yes, they did meet, and um, uh, they didn't get on. And uh, Which is surprising, because when you, when you look at these two men, they have so much in common. A, um, a really, really, I mean, too, too many obvious things even to go into. And when um, uh, Roosevelt's daughter, Alice, was, wa- was asked why they hadn't got on, she said, oh, because they're far too alike. And it's an interesting, um, interesting response. Um, have any of Churchill's children ever commented or written about their father's sense of humour? Yes, Mary Soames uh, writes about it a lot um, in her own memoirs, excellent memoirs, and also in her biography of uh, Clementine. And also um, Sarah Churchill, in a sweet little book called *The Thread of a Thread of Tapestry*, *A Thread in the Tapestry*, uh, also writes about um, about uh, her father's um, uh, love of, of humour. I do recommend it to you. Okay, uh, J.F. Kennedy and Churchill were famous for their sense of humour. Did they interact wittily? Sorry, I read internet. Um, Did they interact uh, wittily? Um, No, not really, because because unfortunately um, Winston Churchill had... uh, He was deeply affected by his senile dementia by the time that Kennedy became... Prime Minister. We know, though, that uh, from one of his private secretaries, that it got through to him in um, uh, at the time of um, Kennedy's assassination, um, which was only a couple of years before Churchill's own death, um, that this had happened, and and Churchill had a he he uh, had a, a positive sense of, of JFK, and he did cry when he heard that uh, the JFK had been assassinated. Last year, Scott Kelly, an American astronaut. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Uh, dear. have I, I don't, have I riffed on this gentleman? Um, I can't remember. Okay, right, here we go. Um, last year, Scott Kelly, an American astronaut. He's not just an astronaut, by the way. He's the UN ambassador to space. Um, you know. No, seriously, don't you think it really takes the United Nations to send an ambassador to somewhere that doesn't have any people or governments? You know? <laughs> Anyhow, um, Scott Kelly quoted Churchill on Twitter and later apologized for doing so, saying that Churchill's atrocity, atrocities and racist views are not something he supports. Um, that's right. He did. He, uh, he he completely failed to educate himself in any way about Churchill. He got a couple of um, uh, he got some trolling from uh, from on the Twitter sphere, and he immediately um, after having quoted some nice lines from Churchill about in in um, uh, in victory magnanimity, um, turned around and um, and came out with all this uh, stuff about um, about racist war criminal and all the rest of that. Uh, my my um I was asked to uh, to comment on this in an article in the Daily Telegraph, in which I pointed out that the space that he really ought to concentrate on is the one between his ears. <laughs> <laughs> um did Churchill's sense of humor ever get him in trouble at home or abroad? Yes, constantly. Of course, yeah, absolutely. No, of course it did. Um but um but he was, he was one of those people who, if he found something funny, uh, and he knew that his audience would find it funny as well, he would say it, pretty much regardless of, uh, of the kind of trouble that uh, that it would get him into. And, um, and so in the House of Commons, you see on many occasions uh, some of those quotes that I, I gave you attacking the various MPs. Um, it, it, uh, the effect, the long-term effect was that he made an enemy every time he did it Um, because not only would the MP himself sitting there get um, laughed at by the the rest of the House of Commons, but then those MPs uh, who heard it would tell their friends, who would tell their friends, who would tell their friends. And if your name was... Awesome, for example, then Churchill had said, you're, you're neither one thing nor the other. Um, that really would stick with you and, uh, and perhaps with your, with your children as well. So you can understand how, we, how he used to get into, uh, into terrible trouble at times because of this. Um, and uh, although he had a very fine filter... Uh, for for politics and, and um, uh, what he would say and the effects it would have on him and on the country in a in a diplomatic sense. When it came to his sense of humour, the filter was um, uh, was was pretty faulty. Are there any more of these? Yes, thank you. Thanks. Were there topics that Churchill never joked about? Um, all, all the um, the ones that any gentleman of the day would not talk about. I mentioned the king, of course, but there would be uh, any number of things that uh, work. You, he very, very rarely um, ever made jokes about sex, uh, for example, which... Um, uh, which is interesting. He was not. He he wasn't bawdy. Uh, his jokes were far too uh, f- sort of dry and finely defined and and uh, intellectual and witty and, and clever to to make um, terribly many gags about uh, sex. Apart from the bosom one, obviously. Um, was there anyone who could best Churchill in the battle of wits and repartee? Yes, his best friend F. E. Smith. Um, uh, and on occasion also um, uh, Frederick Lindemann, Prof Lindemann, um, there's, a, um, there's a battle of wits in, uh, with him and Prof Lindemann in my book and unfortunately I, because uh, I know that I'll fluff the punchline I'm not going to start on it but uh, it's about Christian science and, uh, and, and whether or not, to the extent to which um, either of them could claim to be a Christian or a scientist. And, it is, and, and on that, on that, um, in that exchange of, uh, of witticisms, Frederick Lindemann definitely wins. Um, F.E. Smith was one of the great um, barristers of the uh, Edwardian era, Uh, It was he who made that magnificent remark when the judge uh, said that he was none the wiser about uh, 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 having heard um, um, Lindemann's um, opening speech. And Lindemann replied, no, my lord, but you're considerably better informed. (laughs) Um, (laughs) LAUGHTER but uh, and the, uh, the the list of uh, the list of great Effie Smith jokes are, uh, are wonderful, but the man drank himself to death uh, in 1930. He um, it was it was tragic. He was one of the great brains of politics. He was Lord Chancellor. He was somebody who, uh, had he survived, would have been. I'm certain would have been one of the other um, few enough of them. Other anti appeasers. Of the 1930s, and he would have helped um, Churchill endlessly. And Churchill, um, Churchill's private secretary Jock Colville, told um, F. E. Smith's son, Freddie, the second Earl of Birkenhead, um, that he uh, continually, during the Second World War, said how much he had missed uh, F. E. and uh, and how much he regretted his uh, his death in 1930. How does your biography of Churchill differ from numerous others? Uh, how long have you got? Um, <laughs> uh, thank you very much for giving me an opportunity to, um, to advertise. Um, the, uh, as though that's not a big enough opportunity. Uh, um, <laughs> It, uh, it differs because, and you're, you're quite right about numerous others, there are 1,009 biographies of Winston Churchill in, in, uh, that have been written. Um, it, um, it differs primarily because I was very fortunate enough to have a series of new sources that were not um, available to any earlier Churchill biographer. Uh, I know I've mentioned this um, before several times, I think, so I won't be uh, too uh, prolix about it, but the Queen allowed me to be the first Churchill biographer to use her father's diaries, and uh, King George VI met Churchill every Tuesday. They had lunch together every Tuesday of the Second World War, and uh, the King was trusted by Churchill with all the great secrets of the Second World War, the... uh, the nuclear secret, the enigma secret, who was going to be hired and fired and, and which countries were going to be attacked and so on. And Churchill and uh, the king wrote everything down. And uh, so that was a wonderful new source, as were 41 new sets of papers that have been deposited at Churchill College um, in Cambridge. And uh, Ivan Maisky, the Russian ambassador's diaries, uh, which have only just been made available, the verbatim accounts of the war cabinet which uh, were never used by any Churchill biographer before, Um, and uh, Pamela Harriman's Love Letters as well. Um, And Pamela Harriman led a very uh, active um, love life during the uh, Second World War. So, um, so, And those are just some of them. The the difference, I think, with my book from earlier ones is this avalanche of new information that's come out in the last um, six, seven years. In darkest hour, Churchill is shown joking around with his staff. Is this something he would really have done? Absolutely yes. Uh, he, um, as, as, uh, as I said in the speech, Jock Colville said that there was always laughter in the um, in the house uh, in, in the corridors of Number Ten, and he did not think there was any um, military situation. Too, um, too nerve wracking um, to to laugh about, which in many ways is one of his greatest um, uh, greatest aspects of him. And um, I can see that Alex is getting up, so that means I've got have got time at least for one um, Churchill joke, and I, which I ought to, I just can't remember whether I told it last time. Did I tell the Did I tell the one about um, the the chef? Uh, the, the, sorry, the cook getting pregnant. No, okay, fantastic. Um, okay, in that case, in that case, um, Jock Colville, the private secretary, comes to uh, Churchill in, the, um, in 1952 and informs him that their chef, uh, sorry, their cook, had been made pregnant as a result of a nocturnal assignation with a man in the street in Verona. And Churchill immediately replied obviously not one of the two gentlemen.
0: <laughs>
1: Thank you very much indeed.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, follow the New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at nyhistory, or visit us at nyhistory.org.